does it make sense for large oil companies to dive into the solar industry? The trade war between the US and China also makes its toll on polysilicon companies. Is there, a, is there an end to it? And why is the International Energy Agency always so conservative in their solar estimates? This and more will be discussed today. My name is Martin Hirt and you are listening to a podcast from Sisla Energy and Ocean Industries. We're very glad to welcome Jenny Chase, Head of Solar Insight at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Jenny. Thank you for inviting me, Martin. Uh, according to your New Energy Outlook that was published last summer, uh, an additional $3.7 trillion are to be invested in the upcoming 25 years in, in solar energy. And, and I'm just curious, how do you get to such a number? How do you work at Bloomberg to sort of ah. pinpoint that it's 3.7 trillions? Are you sure you want to ask an analyst about their methodology? Uh, <laughs> because this could take some time. So basically, we have a global model about which the bare bones of it is that it includes retirements of existing power assets like coal and gas plants. It includes um, power demand growth and also power demand reduction in the economies where we're expecting power demand reduction, mostly mostly the very developed ones. And it it also has a lot of economic inputs. So it right. looks at what's cheapest in any given year, what countries need to build capacity, and then it builds the, the two or three cheapest technologies in every year. There's also a small-scale solar model, which is which is modeling consumer uptake of just solar on roofs, which is a really big part of the solar inputs in the developed world. And altogether, this gives us a capacity outlook. And of course, there are CapEx forecasts in the underlying economics calculation. The, the CapEx forecasts are based on the experience curve that we've seen for the past 25 years projected out. And um, then we basically multiply the deployment by the, by the dollars, and we get a 3.7 trillion number. It's actually about 3.4 terawatts of new solar. Right. I think you did a very good job of uh, describing your methodology and still keeping it short. So uh, thank you for that. Um, You're predicting uh, a large growth. And about a year ago, you said in an interview with Bloomberg Business that you couldn't you couldn't kill solar now, even if you wanted to. Uh, What has happened to the solar industry industry over the last years that, that makes it possible to come with such a, a powerful statement? Well, basically, solar's got really cheap. The price of solar modules is about 20% of what it was in 2008. And what we're seeing in particularly countries that are sunny and need a lot of power, of power capacity to be added, they're actually running tenders that where they get bids to buy power at prices that are at parity or even sort of lower than their fossil fuel offers. We're also, of course, at rooftop parity. There are many parts of the world where, depending on the exact regulations, you can stick a solar panel on your roof and and get a better return on that just from saving energy mm. than you would on an equivalent investment. So essentially, it's so cheap that I think people people will carry on doing it somewhere in the world if you removed all the subsidies and even if you put a moderate amount of taxes on it. Um. You also, as you mentioned, that rooftop solar will will dominate in in the future. And uh, I'm I'm wondering how will that affect uh, the grid? Because you're talking about a decentralized power system. Uh, if, if you sort of take it to the extreme, uh, 
you have the grid and also you have uh, not least uh, utility companies who find themselves sort of being disrupted disrupted from below with their business models are on what they used to be uh, how, how do you reach the conclusion that small-scale solar will, will dominate well First of all, you look at the economics and you can you can see that the payback periods, if you you can use the solar to save your energy, are pretty short. They're sort of three to six years in many places. Um, and that means that people will want to do, want to put solar on their roofs. Now, at the moment, power bills, particularly in Europe, are have a very high proportion of variable cost. So we pay most of our power bills on a per kilowatt hour basis. And that's probably going to change because you can't have people simply choosing to cut their electricity bill by 30% and um, and still relying on the grid when the sun's not shining. It's, it's simply not possible for the utilities to keep the lights on under that situation. So, um, and what's happening in the US is a incredibly fraught confrontation between utilities and solar bodies where the utilities are saying hi could you please pay us something for keeping the lights on when mm. it's dark and the and the solar bodies are saying no we generate our own solar we shouldn't be paying for it and i think some kind of compromise is required is that what's going on in, in nevada at the moment uh, exactly yeah. so in in nevada in nevada basically the utilities um won around in december the solar companies won around in California as well, so it's 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 an ongoing battle, state by state, <laughs> I, and, I, and it will probably come here to Europe as well. Yeah, I, I saw Bloomberg had a had an animated GIF of uh, Warren Buffett fighting Elon Musk. Uh, that was um, both disturbing and amusing at the same time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, you you also mentioned uh, uh, subsidies that uh, we we reached uh, grid parity. For some areas, uh, what is your take on on the future of of, uh, of solar subsidies uh, going forward? I know in in the UK uh, they've slashed subsidies quite a lot. Uh, I think the new uh, feed-in tariff was put in in sort of to function as of today. I think I read somewhere that sounds about right. <laughs> so. Um... I think in a lot of places we're looking at changing from subsidies to taxes on solar. Mm. Um, not necessarily the UK, because the UK doesn't, it's not very sunny and it doesn't have the highest power prices in Europe. And to be honest, I'm not entirely sure whether if solar is that valuable to the UK grid, because peak power demand in the UK is in the winter mm. when it's dark. Um, so that's entirely a political decision in the UK. In places like Italy and France and southern Spain, it's fairly likely that in, there are still some kind of sweetener. They're not the explicit subsidies they used to be, but they are definitely sweeteners for people with solar. I think in the next five years, we're going to see that shift to some kind of, of way of taxing people who have solar for the use of the grid. Right. Um, so would you say that the uh, political uncertainty is, is, is still a major obstacle for solar going forward? Not really. Well, political uncertainty is always a, it's, it's a thing. But fundamentally, the reason all these speed and tariffs have been cut is because the cost of solar have been coming down. It's in response to excessive build of solar that is far beyond what policymakers originally imagined it would be. So in a way, the subsidies coming down is not entirely a bad thing for solar. Uh, I mean, it's very yeah. awkward if you're trying to build a business, but... Um, <laughs> 
there's a question I was actually planning to ask you, uh, but I was uh, um, take, taken aback by your uh, brilliant methodological uh, um, <clears throat> run through that. Because uh, I, I, I've noticed it's become more or less known that the International Energy a- Agency uh, quite often underestimate the growth of, of solar, uh, most recently at, at the World Energy Outlook. Always. Yeah, always. <laughs> what is it that they uh, underestimate or do not understand in, in your view? So first of all, I think they're a fundamentally conservative institution, which finds it... Uh, and when and I think their model is good. I've actually worked with on one of their committees collecting data for, for their solar modelling. And I don't think... I, I admire the IEA's modelling of energies extremely. I think the problem is that they aren't good at modelling a disruption. They're very good at modelling the status quo and small shifts in it. But what we're seeing is a disruption and what you probably need is a new model, which is what we've built. They also, being based in France, they tend to be talking to people who aren't seeing, aren't really on the sharp end of the disruption. <laughs> Careful so we don't insult the French. <laughs> Oh, why not? <laughs> um, <laughs> when I was preparing for, for this uh, talk, I went through some of your last tweets. It's, a, it's always a good, good source of information to, to find out what people actually uh, mean about things. Uh, and the one thing that caught my atten- um, attention was that uh, you commented on an article questioning uh, whether BP, the oil company, would have been better off had it not pulled out of uh, solar industry in, in 2011. Uh, and you quite emphatically, using caps lock and everything, uh, just answered no. I was, I was curious, what makes you so, um, so sure that that is the correct answer? Well, you see, I remember it, and they just weren't very good at solar. Or they weren't particularly, they were not very good at um, solar manufacturing, which is a commodity manufacturing process with very mm. thin margins. Um, you need to have, now BP has some, some brilliant scientists and engineers who were working on solar research and solar strategy and, and really understood the stuff. But what they didn't have was a giant factory out in China where they're just trying to grind every fraction of a cent out of the, the manufacturing process and tweak every, you know, Get the wafers a micron thinner. Get the silver paste slightly better spread, and that's what you need to bring down the cut to be a good solar manufacturer. Because uh, uh, one of the reasons I found it interesting, you know, in Norway at the moment, uh, Startoil, the Norwegian oil company, has uh, has recently invested in the first floating offshore wind um, farm outside of Scotland, and they're, they're current they're building up a new. Uh, renewable division and they are currently looking at the solar industry trying to figure out is this something for us and, and if it is uh, what, what do we want to do we're in the sort of value chain is there a room for us so I was looking if you if you'd had if you would give a piece of advice to a, a, a struggling Norwegian oil company that trying to get in or well, considering going into solar uh, without any previous experience is, is it a good idea at all it doesn't have to be a bad idea. I mean, I wouldn't go into manufacturing because solar manufacturing is viciously competitive. Mm. And I think that on average, the solar companies I've written about in a 10-year career have had a shorter lifespan than my pets. <laughs> so it's not manufacturing. On the other hand, some of the expertise, like um, a low cost of capital, the ability to, to own assets 
last for 25 years, the ability to negotiate with governments and other stakeholders to get a power purchase agreement might fit with oil company expertise. Mm. So they might want to go into project development or project ownership. Um, if, if we uh, leave the, the oil and gas majors um, as we're running to a close there, um, the Norwegian solar industry, we have a, a, a couple of uh, international uh, companies in sort of different places of the of the value chain. Uh, yesterday, uh, REC um, announced that they had to close down one of their factories in, in the US, uh, uh, at least for a period of time, and they um, blamed both uh, lower prices for polysilicon, but also an ongoing trade conflict between the U.S. and, and China. Uh, could you briefly sort of explain what the U.S. and China are actually arguing about, and, and what is your take on that on, on that situation? Okay, so first of all, the global price of polysilicon just hit a record low. It's about thirteen point one dollars per kilogram on the spot market, which is unbelievably low. I, I genuinely, five years ago, I would not have thought it would hit that level in my lifetime. And part of that is simply that, that manufacturers of polysilicon in China, in the US and elsewhere have simply managed to get cost out of the polysilicon manufacturing process. And actually, some of them using a similar process to the one REC pioneered, the fluidized bed reactor process, which is um, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. It's, it should work. It's so intuitive. But so part of REC's problem is not just the trade um, war. It's also just the fact that there is a global oversupply of polysilicon right now. However, the trade war is not helping. What happened a couple of years ago is that the U.S. put trade import tariffs, heavy import tariffs of um, around 30% on imports of modules from China. And the idea of that was to protect their own domestic industry, and in particular, a company called SolarWorld, which is actually German, but manufactures quite a lot in the U.S. Um, and China retaliated. China import, China historically imports quite a lot of polysilicon from the U.S. There are some very major U.S. players like Hemlock and Wacker, as well as REC. And China essentially retaliated by saying, we're going to put import tariffs on your polysilicon. And so far, neither of them have backed down. Although there are industry bodies trying to negotiate some kind of settlement and not have these two countries' manufacturing industries slugging it out. Mm. It hasn't worked yet. And to be honest, there's not a lot on the horizon. Um, uh, so um, no good news for, for REC um, in, in the forthcoming uh, period of time? I not guess. that I could say. Although um, that what, what there is is a lot of companies based in China setting up factories outside China, so in Vietnam, Thailand, India, in order to dodge the get cheaper silicon by dodging the, the tariffs on U.S. silicon, and then dodge the U.S. module tariffs going back in. Uh, the, the reason why you, you, you are here in, in Norway, um, Jenny, is that you're addressing the uh, Norwegian Renewable Energy Partners. I think the English title is in Norwegian. It's called Intpo. So I, I haven't memorized the English uh, version, uh, sadly enough. Um, you're addressing the speaking at uh, Solar Day tomorrow. Um, do you have any thoughts on on the, on the Norwegian solar industry? Uh, different niches one could prosper in, or, or Norway's role potentially could be uh, going forward. So the Norwegian solar industry is not very big, as you might expect. Norway is not very sunny; it doesn't install a lot. 
but it does have some quite innovative companies. And Norway's role has always been to develop the technologies and develop the financing mechanisms that are rolled out elsewhere. So the reason I'm here is to find out more about those companies and what they're up to at the moment. Uh, just before we finish off, uh, there's a question I, I wanted to, to ask you. Uh, more on, on the role of Bloomberg New Energy Finance than the solar industry itself. Um, uh, as I've been working uh, with renewable energy uh, over the last few years, I've noticed that uh, the BNF, BNEF uh, is very much a voice that's listened to when you release new reports and outlooks. Uh, do you reflect on the fact that you're also sort of shaping the narrative of, of renewable energy? That's why I come to work every day. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Um, what, what, what we set out to do 10 years ago was, um, was first of all, just to provide accurate data so that it was possible for investors to make investments in renewable energy and feel like they had the information to do it. That was our original setup. Mm. Now we're also trying to shape the narrative based on accuracy. And, and, and to some extent, this is a disruption. I think you need someone who's a little bit more sensitive to disruption rather than the status quo. And yeah, we're just really focused on this. Good. Um, as, as you are the expert out of us, uh, is there anything more you'd like to add before we uh, call it a close? Solar, well, photovoltaics in particular installed about, about 56 gigawatts in total last year. That was a record. This year it will be about 66 gigawatts, which will be another record. And then 2017 is going to be a really exciting year because there's a whole bunch of projects in the US and India that are coming online and that's going to be a 70 gigawatt plus year it it would be really hard to stop solar now if you even if you wanted to okay thank you very much for coming on the the podcast Jenny and good luck with your um, presentation tomorrow thank you okay have a good evening Martin thank you bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.